Hello there and welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Sarah from Sarah Ferruya Coaching and this is the Legends Podcast. I believe there are many, many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and I want to tell them and share them. These legends are a collection of people who I have found during my 20 years in Tokyo and before. All of them are brilliant people and when I became bored with reading another billionaire's biography, I thought I want to tell the stories of the people who I meet who are absolutely fascinating but you won't see on your regular podcast interview. They have overcome obstacles, both systemic and internal, and we cover all kinds of things from creativity, grief, racism, business, disaster, loss, trolling, infertility, farming, eating disorder, eco-feminism, and more. We have elite athletes, people who live on Zen temples in remote parts of Japan, BBC newscaster to Taekwondo champion. Please enjoy these amazing stories from what they've overcome, from what they've built, from what they've created, from the way that they talk. I'm just delighted thinking about it. So please get stuck in and enjoy this next legend. Hello, everybody, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Legends podcast with me, Sarah Faruya from Sarah Faruya Coaching. This is season five, and it is the very fucking creative series where I invite my most creative friends and collaborators and people who I know to come and tell us all about their lives. I believe there are many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and I want to hear them and tell them. And today I have a fantastic artist. Uh, you're not going to believe the list of things that this woman has done in her life. So welcome Kate Thompson. Hi, Kate. Hello. So before I give you your incredible introduction, Kate is a sculptor and a former dancer, perhaps still is a dancer, but um, I'll get into her full introduction later. She's up in Iwate, um, which is in Tohoku. It's actually one of my very favorite prefectures. It was my favorite prefecture until I went down to um, Okinawa. <laughs> now it's my equal favorite. I've even taken my parents up there. So Everybody has stories, Kate. So could you tell us a story, something that's had an influence or an impact on you or something you think will be fun to tell our listeners and viewers? I think the one that probably actually changed my life was when um, I was a high school student mm-hmm. and decided it was probably impossible to be an artist, but I wanted to be close to art, so I decided to go into restoration I was lucky enough to go and see one of the top art restorers in Edinburgh, where I was based. I got there and she had this amazing workshop and was doing all this incredible work. And so I asked her, you know, how did you get into restoration? And so I won't tell the story, but I'll just tell you the effect of the story. She told me the story of how she got into restoration. And I went, oh, gosh, that sounds amazing, but um, incredible journey. Okay. And then she looked at me and said, you know, what's the problem? I said, well, I'm not sure if I'll ever be able to do anything like what you've just described. She looked at me and said, why do you want to be a restorer? And eventually I kind of admitted, well, I don't really, I want to be an artist, but I want to be close to art. So restorer is probably the best thing. And she just looked at me and went, I promise you, it'll be a hundred times easier to be an artist than a restorer. Go for your dream. That was it. So I changed the subject. So I was studying, in fact, I didn't. I was still studying chemistry and 
French and Italian in order to go into restoration and history. Um, so I was stuck with that for the exam cycle, but I still managed to get into art school, even with this strange scientific and art <laughs> So the chemistry was for the actual kind of chemistry of the paintings and stuff to restore things. They would need it for restoration. So, what an incredible story! So, what? Why did you think you couldn't be an artist? What was the? What was that? I mean, I know that people of our generation. I'm, I know that we're a little bit apart, but you know that it was a bit odd to be an artist. Maybe? Um, I'd always grown up with with art around, and my parents had a lot of friends who were artists, and they all just seemed so incredibly glamorous and sophisticated and much cleverer and just more on, on the ball than, than I was. I was very geeky, very shy teenager and I just didn't have the confidence in myself that I thought that I would be able to do it. Wow, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I studied chemistry, biology, maths, the worst things ever and what I really wanted to do was study drama, English, French, maybe RE, but I didn't have the courage to change. I really didn't. So it's later in life that I started to kind of blossom into, into what I actually wanted to do, which is coaching. But now I've started to do a few more creative things like this podcast, for example, which essentially puts me in the position that you've, you were in all those years ago of being close to people who are super creative and enjoying that as well. But it's for anyone, I think. I think, well, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to do totally believe that art is for everyone. Yeah. And that in all its various different forms. Another thing, of course, is that I actually started, was very disappointed with the attitude to art school, actually. Having got in there, I thought that was my kind of my goal. I'd made it. This is the first step of my path. They were still stuck in this sort of rather fake Hollywood image of the solo, egotistical, totally selfish artists stuck mm. in Eric's studio suffering for their art and were so bad at communication and actually not teaching us anything at all. So I kind of just decided when I left that I was going to try going into community art um, with the principle that if you actually show people the basics, they can do it. And show them, show them the basics, the technique, how to do it, but show them the best examples of other people's work. And yeah, proved, I proved my case. I mean, my students, whilst I was a community artist, were, well, they were hardly my students. I was their student and they were all teaching me all the time. They're just fantastic. Gorgeous. Amazing, Kate. And when I say artist for everybody, I mean artist for everybody, like amateur wise. But art is not for everybody in the way that Kate is an artist. That's a very special and different way to be an artist. So I would like to give you your, your uh, rock star introduction now, which I'm taking from your wonderful ukishima.net website. Uh, so everybody should go over there and check it out and look at that. I mean, this is just a tiny, tiny tip of the iceberg of what, what Kate has done and you'll also uh, hear later probably and her wonderful husband too, but we're going to focus it on Kate today. So Kate was born in St. Albans, England and grew up in Edinburgh, Scotland, surrounded by artists, musicians and actors. And her father was a television director and producer and her mother was an interior designer. It does sound terribly glamorous, Kate, I've got to be honest. <laughs> she loved playing with clay since she was a child and spent every holiday with her parents, siblings and cousins in the countryside of the Scottish borders or surrounded by the sea on her visits to her grandparents on the island of Guernsey. Amazing. 
playing to her heart's content with a wealth of free natural materials, making dams and pools, sand cities, mazes in the bracken. Oh my God, I was talking to somebody about making bracken beds the other day when we were out walking. I don't know if you've ever met Tova Kinorka. She's one of the British Chamber of Commerce executive committee members, but we were talking about that on a hike the other week and dens in the woods. Oh yeah. She went on to study fine art at university and then on to become an artist in earnest. While a student, she also experimented with live performance, stage lighting and costume design and formed a dance company with her friends to perform at the Edinburgh International Festival Fringe and other festivals. And you will see when you uh, go and visit the website that her sculptures also have this very kind of flowing and dance. It looks like dance now. And I didn't know that until I was doing all the research on Kate. Fringe festivals. After graduating, she worked as a community artist for the Gorbals in Glasgow for three years, introducing locals to the joy of art. She was then a founding director at the Glasgow Sculpture Studios, wanting to learn how to carve. She won a place as an assistant for the Scottish Sculpture Workshop's International Stone Carving Symposium in 1988. That sentence is why I don't drink before I do these uh, podcasts. <laughs> there she met. Right, just an earthquake, so I'm going to move some of the sculptures. Oh my God, this is, is it a big one? No, it's just starting to Okay, I'm not feeling it here yet. No, it's just a wobble. Just a wobble. I lost, and I pulled, literally, exactly, I pulled these out the other day for somebody else, just before that big one. Oh Lord, <laughs> Lord. Okay, so this is real life in uh, living where... Kate lives is just a, a very small number of kilometers from the epicenter of the huge earthquake back in 2011. And I will note, we will, we will most certainly touch on that later. So, um, can I continue? Yes. Sorry. I beg you. No, no, not at all. And I, I'm, I'm going to ask Jane to leave that in actually, because, um, I think it's important for people to understand how we lead our lives here as well. So after graduating, she worked, uh, <laughs> Sculpture Workshops International Stone Carving Symposium in 1988. There she met Hironori Katagiri. Kate has completed large-scale site-specific public sculptures in Scotland, Europe, Lebanon, America and Japan. Representative works include Waves of Affinity at the British Embassy in Tokyo, which I have seen, Henry Dyer Bronze Portrait Faculty of Engineering the University of Tokyo, Keys of Infinity in the Financial City in Tokyo and River Spirit in Glasgow in Scotland. I've also seen her, their works in uh, Yokohama. And also those sculptures that you're seeing behind Kate there are the awards for the British Chamber of Commerce. And I've just spent a year on their executive committee. I sadly <laughs> have been nominated twice for an award. And I'm wondering if there's any chance that I could have a runners up award or something, Kate. I don't just one of any one of those in the background will do. <laughs> or if I come and visit you, which I am definitely planning to do, hopefully with Laurie, because um, I know our friend James came up to see you recently as well. You know, I'll sneak one into my bag or something. <laughs> so watch on the way out. You know, I'm from Merseyside. You've got to watch me. <laughs> The trophies aren't for sale, but there's all the other sculptures. Yes, and yes, I will. I shall come with my wallet fat and open. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> because I love. I actually do love collecting other people's art. I think a lot of kind of what can I say? Artists who who did something else. 
that's me, <laughs> often start to collect art around them. Instead, this is actually a Hokkaido-based artist who I met in New York, and this is one of his paintings of New York. So tell us more about your background, your upbringing and your childhood and your family background. I thought my childhood was fairly feral until a strange thing happened and we ended up having children. Yeah. I thought, well, I survived my upbringing, so I didn't have to survive two artists. It was insane in a lot of ways, uh, literally. My father was bipolar. Interesting. I think it was really kind of could be crazy. Like one of the things that he did well, I mean, one day when he was on a high, it was the highs that you needed to watch, not the lows. As he went out and he sold the family car and I've got three siblings, so four children, family of six. He sold the family car and bought a red MG sports car. Which was great fun. My mother wasn't too pleased. No, I'm sure she wasn't. How did you all fit in that? I mean, it would be in the 60s or 70s, right? <laughs> um, we couldn't quite manage it with mum in the car as well, but we did used to pile in with all four of us, with two on the on the little pop-up to the bench thing at the back, one in the passenger seat and one sitting on dad's lap, mm-hmm. operating the steering wheel whilst he did the pedals. And then we'd slam them in and out the white lines in the middle of the road so it was a bit but he was great fun and um an absolute star when during the edinburgh festival because growing up in edinburgh with such an incredible festival city with the edinburgh official festival the fringe jazz festival film festival and of course in its heyday in the 70s and 80s when it was sort of really really popular tickets to anything interesting were pretty much sold out but Dad was absolutely brilliant at blagging his way into anything. And um, we'd go to the box office and he'd oh, no, it's sold out. But what are you talking about? It's sold out months ago. And he'd sort of just lean forward and whisper to them conspiratorially, not even for press. And two fronts of road tickets, right, it would immediately appear. And we'd both go and sort of sit and watch something or, yeah, so. Sounds like a hoot, he was- but, a, but a wild hoot. But then um, the other thing that was great fun about the festival was that because Dad was in in the kind of entertainment industry, he knew perfectly well what it's like behind the scenes for most of these people. So we go and sort of say, hear Kirita Kanoa singing. And um, then he'd say, OK, let's, let's go backstage and tell her how much we loved it. And like I would be, to begin with, until I knew the score, would be like, oh, we can't do that. She's yeah. like, Ah, oh, she won't want to hear us. I said, no, she'll be bored, rigid. She'll be dying to know what somebody thought. She'll be going back to her hotel room and eating stuff from the hotel fridge. So we go down to the stage door. We ask to see her. She says, yes, of course, come in. And then dad invites her home for supper. And she comes. I mean, I just met the most amazing people as a result. And then, of course, we were living in this insanely beyond our means house so both my parents were working full-time we had students in the attic and um, it was bed and breakfast hostel during the festival so we had actors um, singers dancers staying through the festival as well because the students were away so they had the students around it was just perfect it was absolutely insane but a perfect upbringing to be an artist in fact and then as it turned out probably a perfect upbringing to end up being an expat sort of surviving, living in another country, sort of having really grown up, meeting people from all over the world all the time. Wow. 
I mean, that sounds so fascinating. And, you know, it sounds like your dad had a really can-do attitude. <laughs> like nothing was impossible for him, especially when he was on one of his highs. Yeah, I've done the great thing. If I can think it, I can do it. Oh, just yeah. love that. Love that. And there's you like all shy going, oh my God, no. And then the next thing you know, Kiri Takano, I don't know how to say that name properly, was the um, New Zealand oh. soprano, right? I mean, she was unbelievably famous when I was young, or when we were young, right? She was so famous. But exactly, the dub is exactly right. I mean, nobody, they invited all these stars, but there was nothing arranged for her. She was just going to go back to her hotel room. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> she was devoted and, and so many other people. It was good fun. Yeah, it sounds like it was good fun. And I mean, being what you described in your uh, bio there as well, that kind of just being out and playing, that was such a, a wonderful part of, I've spoken to people who are our age and, and above, I think there's 10 years between you and I, but we just were so lucky in that there we were able to play out and be out in, in amongst it. And there wasn't so much fear of children being out and about. I was out and about all the time. In the holidays, even if we were in the city, we'd just go out of the door in the morning after breakfast. Probably wouldn't even bother coming back for lunch or maybe we'll have grabbed a sandwich to take with us or something. Yep. And then we had to be back before dark. All hell broke loose if we weren't, which we quite often weren't. But, and, yeah, just running around the neighbourhood, getting up to all sorts of mischief. I remember going back and my, my sister driving the kids to school and me going, what are you doing? You're talking about driving the kids to school. Surely they walk. Um, no. Because, of course, in Japan, the primary schools had... Yes. You have to walk to primary school, which is one of the reasons they kept the countryside primary schools open until they were untenable. Sadly, the local one here that our kids went to closed about 10 years ago. Mm. When my children went there, there were only 27 children in the school. Wow, wow. I would love to see a movie of your life going from childhood up to now. Wouldn't that be fascinating? You can see. Hi? There was a movie made here, you can see, but it's not about us. Okay. That was funny as well. That was, um, we were actually back in Scotland and the local town office phoned us in Edinburgh. And we kind of cracking, you know, what's happened is that as a house burnt down or something is. Something awful's happened by the town office phoning us all the way to Scotland. And they got this film crew in, in who wanted to make a film in the local town, but they wanted to use our place as one of the main locations. And people got terribly excited and stood like, oh, we don't know very hurry. This is so cool. And of course, whereas I kind of grew up with that, so I was a bit more cynical. So I was the one who's, what's the film about? An alternative old people's home. That <laughs> 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 wasn't quite so sexy for poor old Catter. Sign me up. <laughs> I want to end up in an alternative old people's home. <laughs> terrible with names, but that had some big stars in it as well, actually. So they were, they were camped out here for... Oh, but Kate, I'm lobbying for the uh, the the Kate Thompson story from childhood to to now. Wouldn't that be brilliant? Oh, the other the other thing that came up a while ago is um, oh gosh, what's her name? Uh, the Nico Whiskey Rita. Can't remember the family name. Scottish Japanese man who married a Scottish woman. Oh yes, yes. My husband started collecting whiskey after that. Yes. Yeah, love that. And yes. Morning drama. Well, originally that was going to just be a, a two-part film. Uh, mm -hmm. 
and I was up for the part. Because I actually apparently looked very like her. And the bonus of it was that um, I was going to get intensive one-on-one Japanese classes to bring my Japanese up to speed in order to play the part. Yeah. And that was better than getting the fee that they were proposing for it. So I was right up for it. But then they decided to make it the morning drama. And so I was too old. They wanted some pretty young things. Yes, it was that Canadian actor. And my my husband loved that so much that he started to taste whiskey. And now I'm not joking. We don't have any kids, but we do have about 50 bottles of all kinds of whiskey downstairs that he he just loves collecting whiskey. It makes him, he polished it over the weekend and he said it makes him so, so happy. So, you know, if we come and visit you, we'll select a bottle of uh, one of his, I don't know, collection. You'd call it. <laughs> make a hit with cancer who just shared Brilliant. So this idyllic childhood or this kind of wild childhood, perhaps with four kids and and two artist parents and I suppose some eccentricity uh, at play in there as well. I'm putting words in your mouth now, but what happens next? What what did you choose to do next? I think another side of actually the interior design of mother and she probably taught me much more practical skills. My father definitely taught me a lot of good social skills. But yeah. Um, because when she first started out, when I was still a child, um, it was difficult to get masons always to do things. So I used to go and help her as the oldest of the three girls. Yeah. Doing things like helping mum wallpaper the ceiling of a client's house is when I learned all of my bad language. Ah. I don't know if you've ever wallpapered a ceiling, but it's a nightmare. Never. So helping her out with with a lot of the jobs that she was working on at that point as well just gave me a lot of good experience on how to survive. Then, as it turned out, coming here after we bought our derelict field with nothing in it, and uh, we lived in a tin shack for seven years until we built a house, and then eventually kind of got there. So making curtains and insulating the whole of the inside of the house and everything, I kind of done all of that before with mum. So exactly had to do. Again, those older generations, they did do so much, right? They were just such experts. Some of my oldest memories are of sitting underneath those fold-out wallpaper tables with my dad and watching him putting the wallpaper paste on, and then he took teach me. He wouldn't get me to do it because I was tiny, but he would be telling me how he had to get the bubbles out and how thick the paste had to be and how to paint things and just having the right amount on the paintbrush and all that kind of stuff. And we also had a little shed on the back of the house. It was an odd, odd house. It was built into the house, but it was on the house. I can remember sitting in the door of there in my dressing gown, watching him making furniture and stuff. Well, it wasn't fair. He was making our he was making our Christmas presents. He made Sarah's cafe and Matt's garage. <laughs> For me, little tiny wooden things with like perspex in them and stuff. But he made, he made all our furniture when we were young as well. So I just think it's amazing that generation, isn't it? I've lost that now. I've, you know, I've never had to put it into into play, but loved that memory though. What was the biggest lesson then you took from your dad, do you think, on the uh on the social front? I think probably actually that being being shy is actually being selfish. Interesting. Because it means you're thinking about yourself rather than the other person. Interesting. I mean, I would never say that to anybody, but if you if you're happy to say that. 
yeah, so I think it's kind of what made me realize that I had to kind of get over it. Yeah. And just be and be a hostess. Look after yeah. the people who are coming to my city rather than being awestruck by them or kind of what did you say? Such a star and you know, so exactly take them home, feed them, give them drinks, introduce them to the other people there, bring them out to themselves. Because actually most of them as well as in the performing arts, anybody who's on stage, that's a persona. When you actually see them off stage, they're very often actually quite shy. It's shy people very often end up going into the performing arts because they can play this part and be something they're not, in fact, which is very outgoing. Love that. Being shy is being selfish. So being cordial is generous or something along those lines. Love that. And how about from your mum? Just work like crazy. Work ethic. Yeah, work ethic, definitely. Dad, Dad was very inspirational and worked incredibly hard, but he, he had a different kind of slightly um, yeah, inhumane. In, his superpower was the bipolar thing, so he had all that energy. So lots of lots of charisma and lots of inspirational energy, and then your mum had more of that. What more kind of practical work ethic? Or she just worked incredibly hard. She never yeah. poor kids, um, her own full time job, running her own business, um, running a house full of lodgers and um, bed and breakfast people guests, and she was always throwing parties. The house was always just full of people. Just yeah, go for it and work work hard and yeah also just both from both of them that she being they were both incredible hosts just incredible hosts and this is something I've heard about you as well Kate is that you are an incredible host up there so it's now it's all falling into place right for me I'm like oh this makes so much sense that you got this massive piece of land and then just got on with it you know raised two kids there while at the same time building this in, this sculpture business and I mean such prolific work and such famous work as well. I don't know if that's the right word, but like it's well known. People would know it, right? So that maybe people wouldn't know who Kate Thompson is, but then if you say that, I I don't mean to be rude, but you know, if you say like, you know, that sculpture outside that building there and they'd be like, yeah, well, that's Kate Thompson. Oh, (laughs) I think think because it's um, most, most of the work that both Kata and I have done is, is public sculpture. So um, if you go to a museum or a gallery, it's sort of very clear who the artist is, artist is and, and an exhibition is all about that artist. Whereas, of course, bulk of my work is, is just in the public domain. Yeah. Sometimes there's a, there's a little plate somewhere in the paving or something saying who it's by. Yeah. But often there's not even that. So. Wow, wow. So you you mentioned earlier that you studied this odd combination of chemistry, Italian, something <laughs> French, and something else in order to become a rest, restorer. History, Hi, okay. yeah, history. So what what happened next after that? So you went to you went to kind of see this res- restoration expert, and they were like, no, <laughs> no, don't do that. What happens next? And then you, you you get into this. A lot of community stuff happened at first, from what I can gather. So what happens next after you graduate university? Where did you go? Newcastle, was it? Newcastle. Actually, a lot happened was that I was at Newcastle, but mostly in the theatre society and setting up the dance company. Okay. Um, when I first graduated, I, then I got a post as an artist in residence in two schools in Newcastle. That was fascinating because one of them was in quite a nice sort of middle-class area 
and the other one was in quite a tough neighbourhood. Of the two schools, the one in the tough neighbourhood was absolutely fantastic. It was, and it was entirely because of the teachers. Yes. The teachers in the nice middle class area. It was a state school, but most of the teachers were actually working there. A lot of women. Mm. A lot of them, it was the second income for the family that was going towards paying for their own children's private school. Private school, yeah, I know, yeah. They really couldn't give a toss about the kids. Interesting. They weren't interested. And the whole point of me being an artist in residence was to be a seed project. And it was actually because I'm not a trained teacher, it wasn't legal for me to be in the classroom on my own. But they would just leave me there and go off and have an extra coffee break or whatever. And the project went well and I had fun with the kids, but it was a bit hit and run because I was only there for a month. Whereas the second school, which is in the tougher area, the, the staff were just so keen on trying to do anything to help the kids. They were absolutely bowled over by the idea of having an artist come in and be a resident for a month. Not only did the teacher whose class it was stay, as was their actual legal requirement, but any other teacher who could grab any time at all would come as well. Wow. And join. And they were just so hungry to sort of learn new ideas and find a new approach of how to sort of explain or introduce anything artistic to the kids. And it was just brilliant. And the same project in two schools run at the same time could not have gone more differently. And the results in in the schools, supposedly in the tougher area where the, the Arts Council that were funding it weren't expecting as much was 10 times better. You know, I was only there sort of for a couple of days a week. But every time I went back, the staff and the kids had carried on working on it whilst I'd been away. And so I could really sort of help them to then sort of say, hey, well, that looks interesting. And why did you do that? And, and kind of, we could really rock on. Whereas the, the nice sort of cosy, safe school area, although the kids wanted to engage with it, nobody else was backing it up. So that was kind of showed me that definitely wasn't necessarily the, my preconception of tough schools being tough, supposedly. So that then actually possibly gave me more confidence when I got the job as the community artist in the Gorbals. That was interesting. That was actually advertised as for people over 30. You had to be over 30 to apply. And I just thought it looked interesting. So I just, when I wrote up my CV, I forgot to put my date of birth in. Very good. I was 21. So I turned up for the interview and somebody from the arts council said, um, oh, yes, what is your date of birth? And I just said, 3rd of October. What year? Um, <laughs> so it kind of they, then they rumbled it eventually, and so and actually it was jointly funded that one by Scottish Arts Council and Glasgow District Council. And Scottish Arts Council just said absolutely no way; she's too young. And their preconception was that it was too difficult a situation for somebody as young as me to do. But actually, the local people recognised that I was young and naive enough to be idiot enough to actually try and do it. Because essentially, it was what they were expecting of me was impossible. But I was young and naive enough. But I didn't know it was impossible. So a bit like my dad, I just did it. <laughs> I was just going to say there, I mean, it, it's there's, number one, there's nothing I like better than uh, somebody who's not a good girl. Yeah. And the second thing that I was going to say was, do you think you got that cheek from your dad? 
got that. Like, so that's, I call it being cheeky. It's like, be cheeky, be irreverent. That's a quote that I got from the former South African ambassador to Japan. And I just, I just love that. Like not being a good girl. So many people want to be good girls right into their 60s, 70s. It's like, be a little bit cheeky. I wasted wasted the whole of my high school years sort of trying to fit in, be a good girl and and I think I got my comeuppance when the career, some special career advisory team came over and, and got us to fill in questionnaires. And of course, I answered all the questions, what they thought they wanted to hear, rather than what I actually thought myself. And so at the end of it, they came back with that. And, you know, and there was me by this stage, absolutely determined to be an artist. And they came back with, no, 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 no good for an artist. You should be a social worker. Oh, imagine. Anyway, <laughs> so and um, big love to all social workers as well. Ended up being quite a big part of what. <laughs> yeah, I could imagine in the places. So there's a couple of things here. When you were doing those um, community artist stuff, I know that you were doing some dance. What happened? Where, where did the transition come from dance to sculpture? Or I know, is, is it all meshed together, obviously? And then I want to ask you a very practical question, which is, can you describe the gorbals of Glasgow? Because to somebody like me who was raised in the north of England, I know what that means, but other people may not have the context for that. So take it where you want to. So I was making almost exclusively figurative pieces when I was in um, my first couple of years at art school. But I was getting more and more intrigued with the idea of movement and tension and stress in in the human figure. So I started going to dance classes, drawing the dancers as they were practicing various moves. And I decided I couldn't I couldn't get exactly that sense of where's the energy coming from? Where's the weight? Where's the tension? What's driving this movement? Unless I tried it myself. So I took part in the first half of the class and then sketched for the second part of the class where I got to that stage my body was aching like crazy and I could yeah. tell exactly which muscles were meant to be being used that I didn't have and everything like that and then the dance the girl who was who was taking the dance classes leading them and teaching them was quite intrigued by the weird way I had of dancing and so she suggested the two of us set up a dance company and we did it was all students but the other members that we got were all from different backgrounds. So we were all completely different. One girl who actually had a ballet training, one guy who his workshops when he was leading the rehearsal were killer. It was a black belt in three different martial arts. Then um, English student, French student. So we were all kind of, but for me, it was very much right from the start. It was still about sculpture. Right. So when it was my, when I was leading um, improvisations in order to get a choreographed piece ready for a show it was very much thinking of, of just the, the body as material right? so rather than sculpting from the body it was making sculpture with the body and so the way that things were being blocked and, and moved around and at the same time I was working a lot in the, in the theatre there was a really good theatre society at the university and the Royal Shakespeare Company used to come up every year and used to save the venue so we'd all work for them part-time as either doing extras, lighting, whatever, and actually get paid for it as a, an arbite job. So that was a really good way of, of moonlighting, doing stuff. And this, with both the theatre and the dance, um, I think my fascination with it, with it was that it was still, to me, sculpture or sculptural, but it was working with a team of people and working in collaboration and improvising. 
run this sort of set image of of being an art student, um, you know, being pitched as a rival to your friends working next to you and trying to keep things, good ideas, secret. And and somehow it was terribly mean-spirited, it felt like, in the art film, whereas the dance and theatre was much more of that collaborative spirit and being able to experiment with new ideas. But at the time... That idea of crossing boundaries um, became quite trendy later on, but at the time, in the late 70s, early 80s, the tutors were horrified and didn't really disapproved, and they refused to come see any of the dance performances or theatre productions that I worked on, doing the stage, lighting, costumes, sets, um, all of which I thought was should have been part of my degree work, actually, but they, they wouldn't even come see it. But it's still all of that, I think. So I think I learned more that I'm now applying in my sculpture from the University Theatre Society and the dance company that we set up than the actual art departments. Wow, yeah. And, you know, it's back to that sense of generosity as well. Like, I think because you mentioned them being mean-spirited versus that kind of more generous way of, of the, there seems to be a theme going through all this, that kind of, cheeky generosity or something like that <laughs> and definitely not mean-spiritedness <laughs> the other I mean one one phrase that's fun as well right <laughs> phrase that I used in that video presentation that you watched um, yeah. was making theatre sets for life with the public sculpture so it's it's kind of just trying to make spaces where people can take a bit of time out or are prompted to maybe have a conversation with somebody or play um, or just sit and watch the world by by. So it's creating an environment where people can actually enjoy the environment rather than always hustling and bustling. Yeah. I mean, I made I made numerous notes on here about that, but there's things that I, I kind of don't want to get too much ahead of myself here, but we will come to the the marriage of Japan and, and Scotland in, in due time. So then just tell us about the Gorbals. What is the Gorbals? The Gorbals is, well, it's it's all been knocked down and rebuilt now. Yeah. But, uh, it was an absolutely notorious slum in Glasgow. There were very nice tenement flats that were actually built to be kind of um, middle-class houses, but they were their rival construction company um, built a railway. So they literally ended up on the wrong side of the railway tracks, which he did quite deliberately in order to block his rival. And so it wasn't such an attractive area to live in, so the absentee landlords moved in and bought flats instead. And so a flat that was designed for, you know, a family, two adults, a couple of kids, or maybe one kid and one maid, or so maximum four people, they moved two or three families in. Yeah. Or, very large extended families into one of these tiny flats. They weren't looked after properly and they very quickly became damp and run down and they didn't have any um, indoor plumbing or anything yet. So the great dream of the 60s was to demolish them all and build these high-rise flats, or at least that's what everyone was told at the time. Since discovered that it was actually a deliberate policy not only there, but I think across the country, that one of the reasons they were doing this was to actually break up the gangs because the gangs were based, based on streets, the tenement streets. So the powers that be in their insanity decided that if they took away the streets, 
they take away the structure from the gangs and that would solve the gang problem. Actually, all they did was destroy the community spirit. And the gangs, of course, very quickly found a different structure, but the community wasn't there to be a buffer for them. But of course, I mean, Glaswegians, like most people in the north of England as well, that where you said you were from, um, are incredibly good at building communities. So they did not rebuild communities, even in these awful high-rise flats. But then high-rise flats, turned out most of them had actually been designed for Spain, not the wet, damp Scottish climate. And they soon became, very quickly, I mean, in under a decade, they became slums themselves. Yeah. And so, and the gang, the gang structure was still a problem. Gang culture was still a problem. And a lot of drug dealing, a lot of depression, a lot of unemployment. Then, of course, the big industry in Glasgow, particularly the shipbuilding and the steel industries, collapsed. So a lot of unemployment and heroin was a really big problem. In the Gorbals. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this story, this is the story of Liverpool as well. At the same time, I think there was parallel stories going on there. The very similar cities, very, yeah. very similar cities. But then um, also, of course, like you said, there's just this massive heart in there. And so you were working in, you were working as a community artist in the Gorbals. Yeah, and I believe you've got some work in there, right? Um, well, actually, that was, that was rather nice because uh, we did a couple of Murials, as they call them. <laughs> murals. <laughs> murials, that's Hilda Ogden of Coronation Street. Actually, I decided that that wasn't what I was there for because I was there for three years. That I wanted much more to build a studio base. Mm-hmm. Um, ideally, somebody coming through it then could take over the running of it after I left. And um, so it was much more about me working with individuals and um, developing their own work and their own style um, at the time. But then 30 years later, I won a competition to, in the last part of the area that was being rebuilt to make a public monument. So it was actually working in the Gorbals that inspired me to want to work on public sculpture because I was just so frustrated. I had a budget of £150 a year from the So I got really good at begging and scraping. I mean, one of the things I discovered at the time was newspapers were still printed on big rolls of paper. And by the time the roll actually got to about that big, it wasn't economical to start the printing, the press going. So this was, you know, two metre long rolls of paper that big were rubbish. So um, I used to go to go around all the newspaper offices in Glasgow and pick up all their their ends, roll ends. Um, So we always had as much paper as we needed in the studio for anybody to do whatever they make. So we ended up making a lot of sculpture from paper as well as drawing on it. And um, where our school closed down and I managed to inherit all the kilns and clay and the materials that they had left and so things like that. But certainly no public sculpture. And there was one a whole group of kids got really into sculpture and we got really excited about the idea of making a, a sculpture playground. And there seemed to be possibility of funding available for it at one point, but then it all got kiboshed because somebody else had been working on something else in another area said, oh, it's no good because it'll just get vandalised, so the project was cancelled. So it it was kind of like a 30-year full circle, so the seeds of, of wanting to work in public sculpture started in Gorbals and I just couldn't. So I was determined to, to start working in stone 
after I left there and so that I could have the the facility to make sculpture that could last in the public environment. Beautiful. I mean, even talking here about you did sculptures in paper, that makes me think of origami. So now I'm picking up all the breadcrumbs of like your... (laughs) of your your journey to Japan so what so how did that happen if you could kind of fast forward a little bit or change gears a bit to let us know how did you end up meeting Hironori Katagiri or aka Kata your husband also a prolific sculptor and artist so well after I finished in the my three years in the Googles um say I wanted to start working in stone so I won a place as an assistant from the Stone Carving Symposium up in Scottish Sculpture Workshop in, in Aberdeenshire. I very quickly became the symposium clone because everybody else there had at least touched some stone tools before. And I had not a clue. Yeah, I hit my hand more often than the chisel, which hurt the sculptor whose assistant I was. Um, more than me, because every time, every time I picked, it got to the point where every time I picked up a hammer, he'd flinch. Um, <laughs> he couldn't bear it. Oh. <laughs> I really, really love a cup of coffee. Anything but stop, stop hitting yourself. <laughs> okay. So whilst I was in the middle of that, and so I think I kind of took it upon myself to to make everybody laugh, and um, to make up for the fact that I was so useless at carving stone. At that stage, there was one Japanese artist there called Yoshi Miyagi, who was great fun, and he'd been introduced to the project by Kata. And I didn't know this yet, but he came over to check on whether Yoshi was doing okay. He was actually based himself in Austria at the time in Lindebrun, um, running as assistant art director of um, Symposium Lindebrun just outside Vienna. And um, he used to spend the winters at the same workshop where this project I was working on was to develop his own ideas whilst spring he was setting up the symposium projects in Austria and in summer running them in autumn, clearing everything up. So he knew this place well. So when he turned up, it was like the prodigal son returning and everyone was like, oh, Kata's coming, Kata's coming. Actually, before he even got there, I was sick to death of hearing about him. Yeah. Everyone was very, oh, Kata's coming, Kata's coming, Kata's coming. And I was there reading <laughs> You know, for weeks, but is coming tomorrow. Oh, that's a shame. I've got to, I've actually got to pop back down to Glasgow for something. You know, never mind. Maybe meet him next time. And then by the time we got back from Glasgow, two days later, um, my friend Sabrina was, Katis here, Katis here. They've all gone up to the pub. Come on, come on, we'll go and meet him. It's my turn to clean the kitchen, isn't it? And then Sabrina was like, Started cleaning the kitchen. And it was like, come on, Kate, come on, we're going up to the pub. You know, you can come meet Kata. And I don't know, maybe somehow instinctively, I didn't want to meet this guy because I knew that once I did, it was going to completely turn my life upside down. Interesting. I really didn't want to meet him. I was avoiding it. And eventually, Sibylla dragged me up to the pub, walked through the doors. We took one look at each other, and that was it. Wow. And I'm looking at the photograph of you two when you're you're extremely young here, fresh faced. <laughs> and uh, I can I can I'm imagining this version of you uh, walking through the pub doors there. So you you founded the 
Okishima Sculpture Studio in 1991, right? So you met in the 80s, is that right? Yeah, we met in, oh gosh, I always get this wrong, uh, 86, 87. Okay, so, and then you decided that you wanted to have a place of your own, is that right? Tell me the story, how did it all come about? You want stories? So, Rockwell So many. <laughs> I mean, it's enormous, isn't it, your your place? It's a huge yeah. piece of land. It's... Before that, before Kata managed to get me over to Japan, he lured me over to Europe to go on an amazing tour of Europe. Oh, that's the whole series of stories about me working in Europe. Actually, <laughs> I need a part two. <laughs> he also invited a Japanese friend of his to Europe before he met me. He hadn't told him that he'd got a new girlfriend and he hadn't told his new girlfriend that he had a friend coming over. So this strange group of three people touring Europe together. <laughs> you can imagine it was a fairly complicated scenario. But anyway, I completely fell for the whole idea of the sculpture symposium that he was working on and artists collaborating together and so on top of, of him being incredibly attractive the way that he was working was incredibly attractive and so I was absolutely hooked but meanwhile we'd started setting up Glasgow Sculpture Studios as a charity and I was in the middle of writing a constitution and getting charitable status and the company seal organized and all of this sort of thing and we'd found this amazing cigarette factory which was going to be this huge venue for a group studio so Kata, meanwhile, went back to Japan and phoned me up one day at about two o'clock in the morning and said, um, you have to get over to Japan, you have to get over to Japan. And I said, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I will. I'll get there, I'll get there. It's just, you know, I need to set up, finish setting up the Glasgow Sculpt Studios first because, you know, I've started, so I have to finish kind of thing. So a couple of days later, he phoned up at three o'clock in the morning. You have to get to Japan by the end of December. And I thought, ultimatums? Maybe he's not as... Cool, so I thought he was. Okay. Said rather coyly, why? Because your solo exhibition opens on the 1st of March and that gives you three months to make the work for it. That was a really cute move. That got me to Japan. <laughs> wow. Wow. And so, so then you had to you had to make all the items here in Japan? In Japan, yeah. yeah. I worked um, in stone as well, which I was even slower at working. In basalt, actually, it was very hard stone. So he set up for us to stay in this amazing place of Kuriyamakuri. When is I don't know if you've ever heard of the artist is Abanaguchi. Yes, yes. So it's where the same place where he got his stone, and he was one of my absolute heroes. So and actually we were going to meet him. He was coming over, and all the masons adored him, and we were organising this big party for him. And then he got flu and died before he came over. No. This huge party that we'd actually organised for him became his wake. It was terribly sad. But the place, but the quarry was just amazing. And ever since Noguchi had sort of discovered this stone and kind of made it famous, the, the quarry owner had been, Yamada-san had been hosting artists, sculptors like us coming, paying absolutely no rent giving us off cuts of stone for nothing and um, just fairly tough living conditions. And the first morning I woke up and I thought, it's, unbe- I, it's not possible to be this cold. I can't believe how cold it is. And eventually I pulled my head out from a, underneath the futon and realised why it was so cold. 
the futon was covered in snow. Oh my god. There was a hole in the roof. <laughs> and you're coming from Scotland as well. If that was the, the coldest you've ever been, that is cold. I mean, it's Baltic up in Scotland, isn't it? That was really fantastic actually introduction to Japan because there was um the Kata and me saying there and this incredibly generous patron, really, um Yamada-san, who was letting us work there and, and use his material and sort of other sculptors working there who'd used it before. So seeing how they work and learning some of their techniques and then actually blessing Makechi-san helping me polish my piece when deadlines were looming before the exhibition opens. And I just, yeah, fell in love with the whole idea of, of being a sculptor in Japan, which you thought, yeah, this is actually kind of interesting. And then so then we worked in several um, international sculptors and posts all over Japan. So I got to actually, because it's easier to move us than what we make, actually. So we, we moved around making things in various different cities, but before we had our own studio. And then in 1991, we decided that we really needed to have a, a proper base of our own. Um, we couldn't just spend the whole of our careers hanging out at Yamada's quarry and, and yeah. sort of sponging off him. So we needed to set up our own thing. So and we just kept coming north until we found something that we could afford with the space we wanted. And yeah. The address was a pretty good sales point, actually, because there's two, two stone artists. I used to work a lot in ceramics, and it's Ukishima. It actually means floating island, as in the floating island paradise. Ooh. And um, then it's Tuchikawa, Earth River. So, well, play. Mm-hmm. Oh. Iwate, 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 rock hand, rock hand, rock hand. Oh, my God, I didn't even put that together. Iwa meaning rock and tape meaning hand, and the kanjis are that as well. Most artists, when I write our address, they think we've made most of it up. <laughs> no, this is, this, this is the actual address. So serendipitous, and that's what we call the magic in my coaching uh, in my coaching practice. We just, you know, give that a little wink and let it be huge. <laughs> we call it the magic. When I was watching your video, which we will link to uh, below, you mentioned how Japanese and Ainu and Celtic art has some, uh, you, you mentioned some kind of similarities, but then you were also talking about how lots and lots of indigenous art and indigenous culture has lots of overlap. And I was thinking about that and then I started drawing kind of Greek. Uh, which, of course, I mean, it all is echoed in uh, Japanese fabrics and Ainu uh, headbands and all that kind of stuff. For those people who don't know, Ainu are, are the indigenous people of Japan who have been moved up into Hokkaido mainly now, I believe. Is that a good description, Kate? Could you say something a bit more eloquent than that for the Ainu people? Because many people listening might not know what we're talking about. I'm not entirely sure of the how far across Honshu they came, but there, yes. there are some Ainu names still around here. So they obviously uh, went to Tohoku. Yeah. And then they got kind of pushed up to Hokkaido and were treated very poorly for a long time, as were many Aboriginal people. Yes. Their language was banned, their culture was banned. So there was kind of resurgence of Ainu culture very fiercely being preserved by some wonderful people who've managed to preserve it. 
Yeah. So for familiar story, sadly. And also you were talking about the flowing lines of calligraphy, which is obviously a, a big uh, motif in your in your sculpture. And also this is the bit that I love so much and I've got goosebumps saying it, is it the animism of every stone as well? Like animism is something that I'm so interested in and that comes in into contact with dance as well as serious animism and dance and the connection between the earth and us and also just the shit of life and also the animism of feeling and of being and of of all the I mean interesting I mean I've even got bipolar coming up now but that idea that there's just a huge bandwidth of nature and everything has some kind of life and I love that about Shinto as well that everything has some kind of life every stone every plant every piece of wood it all has some kind of life this is something I find utterly fascinating but your also your sculpture has a very recognizable point of view to the point where I was walking through Tokyo and noted some of it which is obviously cousins to the, the ones we can see behind you there as well that kind of flowing line smooth stone and I think that one's called Aphrodite. It's in front of a new, uh, huge, beautiful building complex in in Roppongi. Mm. So, can you tell us a bit about how you how you came to develop your very unique point of view? Your very marrying all these things, the Scottish Scotland, and the, all, all of it. <laughs> there are several threads that have, have kind of continued through Kel- the Kel- Tiki series started, I think, probably in the early 90s. I think there was probably that, that stage where I became more acutely aware of my own culture while being immersed in Japanese culture. And I think quite often you, your own culture actually becomes a stronger feature when you move away from it. Absolutely. And as you get older. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's partly, I think, because you're obviously you're missing it. And you're feeling slightly out of your own comfort zone. Um, but I think it's also because you get to sort of step back and look at it from a distance. Um, yes. So rather than going for the sort of the Brigadoon cliche of Scotland. <laughs> so and I was intrigued quite early on with, with the first time I came across the Ainu kind of key patterns on their, their textile designs. No, it's exactly like Celtic key patterns. And then thinking, well, exactly, and, and like the ancient Greeks, and started looking, and then ancient Chinese art as well, of course, has got it. And, and all of these interlinking patterns. So I thought, well, started trying to do a bit of research, and, and I could be wrong, but as far as I can tell, all of these patterns emerged in cultures that had no communication necessarily with each other at the time, like Celtic and Ainu. I don't think there was any communication there. So what occurred to me was this must be a kind of human aesthetic or intuitive and intellectual response or searching for what understanding nature and the balance between nature and chaos and order and chaos in nature and the, the way that they fit into the world. And then also sort of level uh, at the same time beginning to sort of, I mean, well, right from the start, being exposed to the idea of um, Shinto and the animism, mm. everything everything has a spirit. And I also love the pragmatism of, of Japanese spiritual life, is that most people will call themselves Buddhist, Shinto, and quite often Christian as well. Yeah. 
And the first time I came across that was somebody who spoke very biblical English, and it turned out he'd read the whole Bible. And I said to him, are you Christian? And he said, yes, of course. And it was my preconceptions that got us in a bedroom and said, are you Buddhist? Are your parents Buddhist? And he said, oh, yes. <laughs> Do they mind you being a Christian? <laughs> Do they not mind that you, you know, you became something, you became Christian instead? And he said, and eventually the penny dropped. And I said, are you Buddhist? And he said, yes. Right. Okay. You read the Bible, but you didn't get the bit that we've got this jealous God and you're not supposed to have anybody else in your pantheon. But and perfectly much preferred his his image of it. And then, of course, the way that the philosophy of Buddhism or any other religion that has been kind of assimilated in Japan at some point is then balanced with Shinto's for life. Yeah. Buddhism is applied for the afterlife. Yeah. The death and funerals and the afterlife. But Shintoism, which is the older and more originally indigenous religion, yeah. which has this wonderful animistic thing that everything has a spirit and you should respect those spirits and behave in, in an honourable and sustainable way within your environment. Don't hunt more than you need to. If you hunt some, if you kill something, then you use all of it and you pay respect to that. Even if you burn wood to make a fire, you, you do that respectfully. I just sort of thought this is very nice. And then this that also sort of tied in with this like the image of the, the key patterns of of course, because it's all returning the source or something being repeated, it seemed to have that same sort of rhythm to it. Um in that context with the Ainu. Work so I then and then looking at the uh, Chinese art as well. And so I recognised then that of course, well, was it the same thinking behind the Celtic art as well, and this same sort of sense of animism and um, synergy with nature. And so I kind of thought, okay, well, what did these guys know that we've lost? So in order to try and explore that and understand it, instead of studying books in the library, I I started exploring it in the way I know best, which is with sculpture. So taking all these two-dimensional patterns and see if I could understand them better by turning them into three-dimensional form and space. Yeah. And um, I don't think I found any answers, but I found some very good questions. <laughs> I made some great sculpture from it as well, <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just all the thing that sprung to mind for me, there were stone circles as well in the UK, of course, um, abound in Europe. And and also that these, the sense of animism and having to respect everything around you, everything is so close to us here in Japan. Like it's never not close. Both of us live in, I live in uh, near Kamakura now in Zushi. So I live really close to the sea and really close to the hills as well. And so there's, there's just this constant presence of landslides and tsunami as well, which mm -hmm. kind of brings me to, and you live in the countryside as well. So of course you have well, I'm not going to call it game, but wild animals. I'm sure. What I'm sure you have wild animals that are on your property all the time. I luckily don't have that so much, but just squirrels and uh, lots of insects and stuff. The only one that's ever attacked me was a strange little thing, which I've never quite managed to identify. It's kind of about that long Japanese. Um, everybody here calls it a tanuki, but it's not exactly a tanuki. Yeah. It, but no, it was different. It's not the usual. Time. Something else, like a civet or something. You know, she came into the studio <laughs> as if it owned the place. And I was kind of started mucking around with the, the electric cables that were still on the ground. 
So I thought that's not going to be a good idea if it starts chewing those. So I tried to shoo it away and it just went for me. Wow. And Did it hurt you? Thankfully, I had my steel toe cap, really thick Wellington boots on because it was, otherwise I think it would have been a case of tetanus shots at the hospital. Spray. Right, tetanus, I was uh, not rabies shots here now, I guess. <laughs> but otherwise we get, yeah, we get foxes, um, raccoon, ordinary raccoons, um, the usual Japanese tanuki raccoons. And um, Kamoshka, have you ever heard of Kamoshka? Yeah, yeah, they're like little, um, f- little fat deer, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're, in English, they're called cerro deer, but they're not actually deer at all. They're part. They're a, their closest relative would be a cow rather than a deer. Oh, interesting. But it looks like a little they're short-legged, bo- fat-bodied little. <laughs> yeah. So they're very long-legged cow in that sense. Um, yes. They look actually for all the world like the cross between a cow and an Irish wolfhound. Okay. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful image. Which kind of brings me to talking about, if you don't mind, if it's not too, it's not too close to your heart, is the earthquake in uh, March 11th, 2011. And of course, a lot of stuff came out of that for you. So much stuff came out of that for you. And I believe your husband is from Kesanuba. It really made me cry today when I was watching his his video and he was talking about going up to Kesanuma and nothing felt big enough to to kind of because that town was completely devastated. I don't know if anybody who's listening can can remember the worst affected towns and that was one of them. And then of course you did stuff in Scotland, you did the building up hope projects. Can you tell us a little bit about well first of all what was the personal impact for you on that? I mean you had an earthquake just before, and we've had a couple of big ones recently, which I think I'm understanding are what you call them aftershocks from the one 11 years ago. But were you at your studio? Because how far were you? About 100 kilometres from the epicentre there? Uh, no, it must be a bit more than that. I think I've got my geography something. Not that we're, we're quite far in London. Yes. Before, I mean, once the earthquake was going on, it was just so long. It went oh. on and on, and it was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Before it started, I put, I was working in the studio, and I'd gone back to the house where the office is because Kata was late for a meeting and needed to check some papers with me that he needed to take to his meeting. So he'd asked me to come back over. And I was just sitting there looking at his, um, you know, all the stuff that was getting organised. And I just seemed to feel them earlier because I think I didn't grow up. And I feel them in the pit of my stomach just a couple of seconds before. Yeah, same. And I just said to Kata, earthquake. And he was like, oh, for goodness sake, Kate. Yes, okay, we get them all the time. Just concentrate. We need to get this. I need to get this, you know, which one of these should I take kind of thing. And I went, no, this is going to get big. And by this stage, it was moving. But, I mean, like a, a normal earthquake that you get all the time. And... Kata was like, yeah, it'll go, it'll pass in a second. And I said, no, Kata, we need to get out now. It just felt different right from the start. And before he could get the sentence out to continue arguing with me, he just went, oh, fuck. Because yeah. it just getting bigger the whole time and still going once we've been having this conversation and still getting bigger. And the whole hell of snow was going like this. So we went outside in the snow. And I suddenly thought, oh, my God, the sculpture I was working on was still just standing on the banker. You know, normally lie things down or they, they're pinned or they're on basis. They don't fall over in an earthquake. And, and so I started trying to run to the studio 
to line the sculpture down before it fell off the table. And um, I think I must have got about five yards before I couldn't, I you couldn't, couldn't move anymore. anymore. Yeah. Let alone run. And I crawled back to where Kata was. It was still going and getting bigger and bigger. And it was just like, actually, I thought, you know, this is it. This is yeah. the end of the world. There's no way the earth can take this because it was just so big and everything was just, and it wasn't like we were sitting in the snow and it wasn't like sitting in the snow on solid ground. It was like sitting on a rough ocean. Yeah. It wasn't solid. It was completely moving and very, very aggressive, very big and quite violent. Just anyway, I was sitting there thinking, oh my God, this is it. You know, we're never going to see our children again kind of thing. And Kata, of course, who's from Kasenema, just went, oh, my God, tsunami. The earthquake was still going. All of this story so far, the earthquake was still going. It finally, about the moment that he said tsunami, it finally started slowing down. And I thought, I had that double moment of, oh, my God, there's somewhere even worse than this. Yes. And then I'd almost hardly even had time to form that thought when the second when the second one started. And it was just it was just absolutely insane. But by this stage it was I mean very good actually almost the thing of like the thing you were saying earlier about being shy is, is being selfish because you're thinking about yourself. But sort of because Canterbury introduced the, the the idea that there was a tsunami, I kind of was therefore not worried about myself was the priority any longer. I was worried about his family on the coast and friends on the coast and and everything else. And of course the power was cut immediately. So we couldn't listen to the television. We found an old radio, but of course didn't have batteries that fit. So we jerry-linked all these batteries together with tape and everything. So like some want installation coming out of the back of the radio so we could listen to the news on the radio. I mean, actually, complete couple of twits. We spent about two hours doing that. So there was a third moment the next day when we got in the car to go and do some shopping. There was a radio in the car. Right, but you become a mammal <laughs> at that point, don't you? I, I felt more like an animal that that week than I've ever felt in my life. I just, I was a mammal. Uh, so you, you don't have any kind of like, oh, rational. It's just you're focused on one thing and one thing only because you in such major league hijack. I don't think we recognised it either, but we just in a state of shock as well. 100%. And so then most of the phone lines were down, but we did actually get a phone call from a friend who lives in the local town. We'd actually gone off on holiday and was on a bus tour in Kyushu watching his car being washed away at Sendai Airport. I mean, it came so far in down there, didn't it? But, his, the, but he wasn't worried about that. What he was worried about is his daughter and his baby grandson were on their own in his house in, in the local town. He could be going to check on them. So I went and drove into town to check on them and it was really creepy because, of course, all the lights are out. The only, only two buildings still had lights because they've got their own generators, yeah. the station and the hospital, and everything else was just completely dark even in the town. And so got to Lysa's house and tried... Of course, no doorbell because no electricity. So banging on the door, and eventually she came to the door, shaking like a leaf because she couldn't work out who was banging on the door with the baby in her arms. And I just took one look at her and said, "You're not staying here by yourself. You're coming home with me now. Grab all the milk powder and milk as you've got. You're coming home." 
So she actually that she was a godsend to have her around for the next couple of weeks that she had the baby because I had them to look after instead of worrying about myself. So that night we all huddled around candles and listening to the radio with our weird battery installation. By which time, of course, we were getting the news of Fukushima. And we just, well, some of the news of the tsunami, what it, how huge it had been, and then of Fukushima. And it was just like, it was, just seemed to be getting to that impossible stage of every news report was sort of more end of the world scenario and each new one was even worse and it was just like oh it's awful oh my god how can this be happening yeah we absolutely thought you know that evening we were all discussing about what we can do what can we try and do to help and that of being from the seaside is actually incredibly practical and so well it's absolutely no good just doing a knee-jerk reaction and rushing in there you'll just be a bloody nuisance and get in everybody's way. They don't need you just now. You'll just be in the way. So stay out of the bloody way. And, um, you know, let's think about what we can... This is something that's going to take a long haul to deal with. So let's see what we can think about to try and support people through the long haul, which is where we then came up with the various art projects that, that we ran. In fact, the postcards one was inspired because we couldn't get hold of family and friends on the coast and the first news that we actually had from the coast arrived by postcard. It just the whole the effect that that one postcard had on the whole household of people we had by then, kind of earthquake refugees living together, was just so wonderful. And meanwhile, I was getting all these emails from abroad because we had electricity back saying, Are you okay? Are you okay? And thinking, it's, I'm fine. The people who need this are not, not getting it. So, um, decided to ask artists all over the world if they'd send art postcards to Japan with the same kind of messages of support. But instead of it all having to be translated, that's why I asked artists in particular just to make it a visual message of support. So I thought artists might be able to sort of communicate without words that wouldn't all need to be translated. And it turned into, I thought I might get about 30. We end up with well over 500, and um, it ends up being a really stunning project. And each community that we set up with has, has responded in their own way. And many people, actually, the one that shocked me the most, though, was um, one of the first times we pushed up. And, um, a whole bunch of high school students burst into tears. And I was looking at it, and I was kind of like, oh, God, oh, God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to the chap who was in charge of the place and he said no it's the first time they've been able to cry and they needed to essential and it was because it was that one step removed they were all pushing on a brave face for each other and also really for the first time understood the whole japanese manners system because you can make no assumptions about how hard a place somebody else is in so you have to very very gently very carefully kind of skirt around, find out if they're okay, if there's anything you can do to help them. And, you know, how they're managing and do they want to talk or do they want to just be left alone? And the huge advantage of me being a foreigner with the Postcards Project is people just assumed that I was nothing to do with it. It never dawned on anybody that I was actually here nothing or anything. It's just you're immediately, you come in from the outside. So people could could tell me their stories and could loosen up to me and, you know, not not 
feel self-conscious that the other person might have an even worse story and yeah. be offloading onto them. So a lot of people were telling the stories. And the, the Postcards project was kind of that multiplied by hundreds because all of these people from all over the world had introduced themselves and told part of their story by sending the postcard. And then because it, I think it just exactly was enough of a trigger that one step removed, but close enough that people were really moved and did a lot of people, a lot of people cried. And actually everywhere I went, very quickly I discovered that actually that was one of the greatest things it did for people was letting them let go. For a lot of people, it was the first time they cried. Even years later, when we still came yeah. on showing it, it was the first time we cried. Wow. Right. And it's a beautiful piece. I mean, it, it's very sculptural as well. It's all these beautiful postcards and you used fishing lines, right? And fishing nets, is that right? To kind of put it all together in this beautiful kind of flowing, I don't know. Beauty of the fishing net, how on earth we were going to show them was one thing we were really struggling with. And then suddenly the penny dropped and I said, thought if we use the fishing net, incredibly symbolic, but also the beauty of it is it's an island fishing net stretches like fun so you can actually literally stretch it across any it is huge i mean it's a fishing net so it's huge so um we could adapt it for any space so from huge museum malls to community centers post offices shopping malls um you know anywhere that they wanted to have it put up we could and then if, even for very small spaces we could just chop a bit off the fishing net and just put up yeah. it or in one place, we had to make kind of like six different installations in different parts of the same building. So Where is it now, Kate? It's actually in our studio. We decided that 10 years, it had its final showing in the Family Portrait Exhibition in Morioka as part of a, for the 10th anniversary last March. Yeah. Um, and we had um, another stunning volunteer project called Aitavoku, Um which is run by a super couple of photographers based in Tokyo, Brian Scott Peterson and Yoko. But actually, if you look on Facebook, photo hoku, so marrying photo, photo and tohoku together. Mm, photo hoku. And so we showed what they've been doing over the last 10 years, which is a stunning project. We showed the postcards to Japan and its sister project, Postcards from Japan, with work by artists from plus um, some of our daughter Emily's illustrations in response to the disaster and our own two um, sculpture and drawing installations on the theme of, of the ongoing recovery process, really. So we, since then, we're actually trying to find um, a permanent home for the set of three. So the postcards to Japan, the postcards from Japan and the photohoku photographs that they took. We want to try and put them together and are looking for, for an archive home somewhere. I think I think they've they've been touring for ten years. I think that's Yeah. And and I think there comes a point where drawing a line is is really important. I think that Japan's very good at that kind of deciding that a time period is up. It's that phase, it's kind of, the recovery is still very much ongoing. Yes. But um, that, that particular project, I think, has had its, had its day. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And it was building up hope. And then... Um, postcards, postcards, building up hope was one of the images in Postcards from Japan. 
Oh, was that was the one from that was the the second round, was it, where you asked an artist from Japan, where we got artists from across Tohoku to send postcards back, and that was originally only meant to be for one venue. Um, mm-hmm. It ended up touring the world. Amazing, and I loved the the reaction of one of the one of the guys was, "Are you joking? I'm not going to do that." Do you know what I'm dealing with right now? And then the next day he called you back and was like, no, actually, this is, uh, was it Yoshitomo Saito? I found that really, really moving, sent the picture of the baby holding the finger or something. Is that, is that right? Am I remembering this right? Yes, you are. And that's oh. that's the title of that particular work is Building Up Hope. Yeah. Oh, God, I'm getting a bit choked up thinking about it again now. So <laughs> anyhow. So what's what's in the future for you and uh, the Ukishima studio then, Kate? You're just continuing to do more and more beautiful, prolific work. And We've got our 30th anniversary exhibition at the Ishigami no Museum and Sculpture Park in wow. September. Uh-huh. Um, part of that, what I'm working on at the moment is some, well, I've got to make some big pieces for that because it's a sculpture park, some big outdoor pieces as well. But I'm also doing the opposite and working on little tiny, tiny pieces in wax, which I'm casting into silver. Wow. So it's a special kind of 30th anniversary project. Wonderful. Just the idea it might be quite almost like Netsuke size sculptures. Oh, um, yeah. The, the, okay, those little tiny things about this big. Yeah. Yeah, you, yeah please. Oh, there we go. Oh, wow. That's wax. So that's not been cast yet. That's not but that's going to get cast in silver. So, and then that's one cast in silver. Instantly recognisable. So I've only got three so far in silver. Thanks for sharing those. Yeah, that's, so that's just three I've managed to get done so far. Oh, love. I've got hundreds of waxes all over the place. Oh, I'm so excited to come up and visit you at some point with my husband. And so... Where can people find you, Kate? Um, we've got ukishima.net. Is there anywhere else that you would like people to connect with you, like Instagram or anything? Yeah, the Instagram is actually updated more regularly probably than, yes. the, than the website. Um, mind you that, no, Kat's very good at keeping the news up on the website. Um, but Instagram is just Ukishima Sculpture Studio, at Ukishima Sculpture Studio. Um, and we'll link to those below. And finally, Kate, there are many ways to lead a life. What does that mean to you? Definitely, I think our way of leading life was um, probably absolutely insane. The derelict field 30 years ago. But one thing we have definitely discovered is the best time to plant a tree was 25 years ago. And we planted a lot of trees 25 years ago, and they are looking stunning now. So we have really quite a good environment here now. But the next best time to plant a tree is today. So it's taken us 30 years to build up where we've got to and create the environment that we've got here for working. But we're still interested in sowing seeds and planting trees and experimenting with new things. And so the journey is definitely not over, but it's got an awful lot more comfortable. We now have indoor plumbing (laughs) um, and a hot bath is possible. When we started off, we had a metal shack um, and having to go out to the well to get a bucket of water. So it's been an absolutely wonderful way of living a life, actually, because it's been like the evolution of civilization. Wow. Love Starting it. 
with an empty field and, and building it up sort of step by step. Um, whenever we could. Each new improvement just has been so luxurious and so enjoyable. When we finally built the house, the the old second-hand boiler that we got eventually in the prey hub, so we had indoor, not only indoor cold running water, but indoor hot running water. Then when we built the house, we got a new boiler for the house and we moved the old second-hand boiler to the studio so we could use hot water for polishing stones. <laughs> Incredible luxury. So whereas when we first started out with no studio and no cover, I mean, like working in the winter here was um, the Ukishima sandwich is what I called it. <laughs> Where you work with water for polishing the stones so you've got ice on your front and snow on your back. Oh, my God. The- Sandwich. But now, now we have try not to do the polishing work in the winter, but inevitably it always ends up that, that somebody wants something polished in the winter. But um, we have roof under which we can work on most most size pieces. But big, really big scale, we still work outdoors. But we can time it, not to have to do it in the snow all the time. So enjoy the moments. I mean, I think um, like when the kids were. When I first found out I was pregnant with our first child, it was like, oh, my God, no, we're living in a metal shack in the middle of a field with no indoor plumbing. We can't possibly have a baby in this. And not only did we have one baby, we had two babies whilst we were living there. And the beauty of it was it was it was a metal shack in the middle of a field. It didn't matter if the children drew on the walls or spilled stuff on the floor. You know, it wasn't precious, so they could be as, as kind of messy as they wanted to be with two messy artists and gradually things got upgraded so wonderful wonderful that reminds me a little bit of the uh conversation i had on one of my previous podcasts with karen hill anton who you may know uh, also a long-term resident here who's written a wonderful memoir and she lived out in the in the sticks in a no no hot water with her walking as well so uh, but uh, she she was a messy writer not a messy artist <laughs> and you mentioned your daughter there and I just want to uh, uh, this is a very I don't usually want to show this and unfortunately it slipped a little bit when I was bringing it off the wall but um this is uh, an original piece by Kate's daughter who's a, a manga artist is that right this is my you know one of my best friends forever Laurie who's Scottish and also good friends with Kate and very strong Scottish connections as well as British Chamber of Commerce connections and she did this she got this commissioned by Kate's daughter for my 50th birthday so I'm just so lucky to have this and I, I now I want a companion piece to it I want to come and buy an original sculpture from it as well that I can take with me too uh, to remind me of my roots too so Kate, thank you so much. We've take, we've gone from the, the Celtic roots of your Scottish Guernsey uh, background to the incredible tales of your father and the, you know, the New Zealand opera singers and the Edinburgh Fringe Festival to the Gorbals to your incredible community work that you did there and how much passion you have for that and looking after people and then finding your place in Japan and using the movement and the calligraphy and the animism and the dance and everything to create these beautiful moving sculptures in stone. And then just this this incredible wisdom about planting trees. And what what I'm taking away from this is just this incredible ability to just do things, identify what you need and then do it. And also (laughs) you can't avoid your true love, even if you try to. (laughs) 
<laughs> so Kate, <laughs> thank you so, so much. This has been the Legends Podcast with Kate Thompson from Ukashima Sculpture Studio in Iwate Ken. I love that part of the world. I've actually done a gunboat race down the river there from the dam to into Morioka many, many years ago. And it's just been an absolute joy listening to your stories here. We've gone way over time, but I've absolutely loved it, Kate. So thank you so much. And in spite of our technical difficulties, I hope that you've all enjoyed this too. Um, this is Sarah Faruya from the Legends Podcast. There are many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories. And this has been an absolute gem. Thank you so much for listening to this latest legend on the Sarah Faruya Legends Podcast. Hop over to sarahfaruya.com where you you can find the full complement of uh, Legends interviews and conversations. Also, you can like and subscribe over on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. I absolutely love these interviews and these conversations I have with these people. I don't care about subscribers, if I'm absolutely honest. It just helps to get more people over to listen to these fantastic people. I cannot wait for my next interview. I really hope you can get stuck in and find some juice and some delightful little nugget of knowledge or encouragement from these that will help you to create your story and to take your story forward and to weave and dream up and high dream your own story. Buoyed up by the stories of these people, I would call them ordinary, they're not, but these people, these beautiful legends who I've selected to help you on your way and to help me on my way. So please enjoy, share, subscribe. My Facebook page is Sarah Faruya Coaching. My Instagram page is at Sarah Faruya Coaching too. So get into it. Thanks. Bye.